how to pronounce his name, Leif. Good, wonderful. The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. Part 2, The Learning. Christmas Eve. I guess this is actually part, uh, chapter 1 of part 2. Is that a rook? That is probably a rook or a chicken. <laughs> Hard to say. It's a good chicken. So, part two of the learning, chapter one, Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. It was the day when the delight of Christmas really took fire in the Stanton family. Hints and glimmerings and promises of special things, which had flashed in and out of life for weeks before, now suddenly blossomed into a constant glad expectancy. The house was full of wonderful baking smells from the kitchen, in a corner of which Gwen could be found putting the final touches to the icing of the Christmas cake. Her mother had made the cake three weeks before, the Christmas pudding three months before that. Ageless, familiar Christmas music permeated the house whenever anyone turned on the radio. The television set was never turned on at all. It had become, for this season, an irrelevance. For Will, the day brought itself into natural focus very early. Straight after breakfast an even more haphazard affair than usual, there was the double ritual of the Yule log and the Christmas tree. Mr. Stanton was finishing his last piece of toast. Will and James stood on either side of him at the breakfast table, fidgeting. Their father held a crust forgotten in one hand as he poured over the sports page of the newspaper. Will, too, was passionately interested in the fortunes of Chelsea Football Club, but not on Christmas Eve morning. "'Would you like some more toast, Dad?' he said loudly. "Mm," said Mr. Stanton. "'Ah!' James said, "'Have you had enough tea, Dad?' Mr. Stanton looked up, turned his round, mild-eyed head from one to the other of them, and laughed. He put down the paper, drained his teacup, and crammed the piece of toast into his mouth. "'Come on, then,' he said indistinctly, taking each of them by an ear. They howled happily, and ran for boots and jackets and scarves.' Down the road with the handcart they went, Will, James, Mr. Stanton, and tall Max, bigger than his father, bigger than any one, with his long, dark hair jutting in a comical fringe out of a disreputable old cap. What would Maggie Barnes think of that? Will wondered cheerfully, when she peeped roguishly as usual round the kitchen curtain to catch Max's eye, and then in the same instant he remembered about Maggie Barnes, and he thought in a rush of alarm— "'Farmer Dawson is one of the old ones. "'He must be warned about her.' "'And he was distraught that he had not thought of it before. "'They stopped in Dawson's yard, "'old George Smith coming out to meet them with his gaping grin. "'The going had been easier along the road that morning, "'since a plough had been through, "'but everywhere the snow still lay unmoving "'in a constant grey, windless cold. "'Got you a tree to beat all,' old George called joyfully. "'Straight as a mast, like farmers. "'Both royal trees again, I reckon.' "'Royal as they come,' said Mr. Dawson, "'pulling his coat tight around him as he came out. "'He meant it literally, Will knew. "'Every year a number of Christmas trees were sold "'from the crown plantations round Windsor Castle, "'and several came back in the Dawson farm lorry to the village. "'Morning, Frank,' said Mr. Stanton. "'Morning, Roger,' said Farmer Dawson, "'and beamed at the boys. "'Hey, lads!' "'Round the back with that cart.' 
His eyes slid impersonally over Will without so much as a flicker of notice, but Will had deliberately left his jacket swinging open in such a way that it was plain there were now two crossed-circle signs on his belt, not one. "'Good to see you looking so lively,' said Mr. Dawson breezily to them all, as they heaved the hand-cart round the barn, and his hand rested briefly on Will's shoulder with a faint pressure that told him Farmer Dawson had a good idea of what had been happening in the last few days. He thought of Maggie Barnes, and searched hastily for words to frame a warning. "'Where's your girlfriend, Max?' he said, carefully loud and clear. "'Girlfriend!' said Max indignantly. Being deeply involved with a blonde-tressed student at his London art school, from whom enormous blue-enveloped letters arrived in the post every day, he was totally uninterested in all local girls. "'Ho, ho, ho!' said Will, trying hard. "'You know!' Fortunately, James was fond of this kind of thing, and he joined in with enthusiasm. "'Maggie, Maggie, Maggie!' he chanted gaily. "'Ooh, Maggie the dairymaid, sweet on Maxie the great artist! Ooh, ooh!' Max punched him in the ribs, and he lapsed into snorting giggles. "'Young Maggie's had to leave us,' Mr. Dawson said coolly. "'Illness in the family. Needed at home. She packed up and went early this morning. Sorry to disappoint you, Max.' "'I'm not disappointed,' said Max, turning scarlet. "'It's just these stupid little—' "'Ooh, ooh,' sang James, dancing about out of arm's length. "'Ooh, poor Maxie, lost his Maggie!' Will said nothing. He was satisfied. The tall fir-tree, its branches tied down with bands of hairy white string, was loaded onto the hand-cart, and with it the gnarled old root of a beech-tree that Farmer Dawson had cut down earlier that year, split in half— and put aside to make yule logs for himself and the Stantons. It had to be the root of a tree, not a branch, Will knew, though nobody had ever explained why. At home they would put the log on the fire to-night in the big brick fireplace in the living-room, and it would burn slowly all the evening until they went to bed. Somewhere stored away was a piece of last year's yule log, saved, to be used as kindling for its successor. "'Here,' old George said, appearing suddenly at Will's side as they all pushed the cart out of the gate. "'You should have some of this.' He thrust forward a great bunch of holly, heavy with berries. "'Very good of you, George,' said Mr. Stanton. "'But we do have that big holly tree by the front door, you know. If you know anyone who hasn't—' "'No, no, you take it.' The old man wagged his finger. "'Not half so many berries on that bush of yours. Particular holly this is.' He laid it carefully in the cart, then quickly broke off a sprig and slipped it into the top buttonhole of Will's coat. "'And a good protection against the dark,' the old voice said low in Will's ear, if pinned over the window and over the door. Then the pink-gummed grin split his creased brown face in a squawk of ancient laughter, and the old one was old George again, waving them away. "'Happy Christmas!' "'Happy Christmas, George!' When they carried the tree ceremonially through the front door, the twins seized it with crossboards and screwdrivers to give it a base. At the other end of the room, Mary and Barbara sat in a rustling sea of colored paper, cutting it into strips, red, yellow, blue, green, and gluing them into interlocked circles for paper chains. "'You should have done those yesterday,' Will said. "'They'll need time to dry.' "'You should have done them yesterday,' Mary said resentfully, tossing back her long hair." It's supposed to be the youngest job. I cut up lots of strips the other day, Will said. We used those up hours ago. 
I did cut them all the same. Besides, Barbara said peaceably, he was Christmas shopping yesterday. So you'd better shut up, Mary, or he might decide to take your present back. Mary muttered but subsided, and Will half-heartedly stuck a few paper chains together. But he kept an eye on the doorway, and when he saw his father and James appear with their arms full of old cardboard boxes, he slipped quietly away after them. Nothing could keep him from the decorating of the Christmas tree. Out of the boxes came all the familiar decorations that would turn the life of the family into a festival for twelve nights and days, the golden-haired figure for the top of the tree, the strings of jewel-colored lights. Then there were the fragile glass Christmas tree balls, lovingly preserved for years. Half-spheres whirled like red and gold-green seashells, slender glass spears, spider-webs of silvery glass threads and beads. On the dark limbs of the tree they hung and gently turned, shimmering. There were other treasures, then, little gold stars and circles of plated straw, light swinging silver paper bells. Next a medley of decorations made by assorted Stanton children, ranging from Will's infant pipe-cleaner reindeer, to a beautiful filigree cross that Max had fashioned out of copper wire in his first year at art school. Then there were strings of tinsel to be draped across any space, and then the box was empty. But not quite empty. Riffling his fingers gingerly through the crumbled handfuls of packing paper, in an old cardboard container nearly as tall as himself, Will found a small, flat box, not much larger than his hand. It rattled. "'What's this?' he said curiously, trying to open the lid. "'Good heavens!' said Mrs. Stanton from her central armchair. "'Let me see that a moment, love. Is it—yes, it is. Was it in the big box? I thought we'd lost it years ago.' "'Just look at this, Roger. See what your youngest son's found. It's Frank Dawson's box of letters.' She pressed a catch on the lid of the box, so that it flicked up, and Will saw inside a number of ornate little carvings done in some light wood that he could not name. Mrs. Stanton held one up. A curved letter S, with a beautifully detailed head and scaly body of a snake, twirling on an almost invisible thread. Then another, an arched M, with peaks like the twin spires of a fairy cathedral. The carvings were so delicate that it was quite impossible to see where they joined the threads from which they hung. Mr. Stanton came down from the stepladder and poked one gentle finger into the box. "'Well, well,' he said. "'Clever old Will.' "'I've never seen them before,' said Will. "'Well, you have, really,' his mother said, "'but so long ago that you wouldn't remember.' They disappeared years and years ago. Fancy them being at the bottom of that old box all the time. But what are they? Christmas tree ornaments, of course, Mary said, peering over her mother's shoulder. Farmer Dawson made them for us, Mrs. Stanton said. They're beautifully carved, as you see, and exactly as old as the family. On our first Christmas day in this house, Frank made an R for Roger, she fished it out, and an A for me. Mr. Stanton pulled out two letters which both hung together from the same thread. "'Robin and Paul. This pair came a bit later than usual. We hadn't been expecting twins. Really, Frank was awfully good. I wonder if he has time for anything like this now.' Mrs. Stanton was still turning the small wooden curlicues in her thin, strong fingers. "'M for Max and M for Mary. Frank was very cross with us for having a repeat, I remember. "'Oh, Roger,' she said, her voice suddenly softening. "'Look at this one.' Will stood beside his father to look. 
It was a letter T, carved like an exquisite little tree spreading two branches wide. T, he said, but none of us begins with T. That was Tom, his mother said. I don't really know why I've never spoken to you younger ones about Tom. It was just so long ago. Tom was your little brother who died. He had something wrong with his lungs, a disease some new babies get, and he only lived for three days after he was born. Frank had the initial already carved for him, because it was our first baby and we had two names chosen, Tom if it was a boy, and Tess if it was a girl. Her voice sounded slightly muffled, and Will suddenly regretted finding the letters. He patted her shoulder awkwardly. "'Never mind, Mum,' he said. "'Oh, gracious,' said Mrs. Stanton briskly. "'I'm not sad, love. It was a very long while ago. Tom would have been a grown-up man by now, older than Stephen. And after all—' She gave a comical look around the room, cluttered with people and boxes. A brood of nine should be enough for any woman. You can say that again, said Mr. Stanton. It comes of having farming forebears, Mum, said Paul. They believed in large families, lots of free labor. Speaking of free labor, said his father, where have James and Max gone? Fetching other boxes. Good Lord, such initiative! Christmas spirit, said Robin from the stepladder. "'Good Christian men rejoice, and all that. "'Why doesn't someone turn some music on?' "'Barbara, sitting on the floor beside her mother, "'took the little carved wooden tea from her hand "'and added it to a row she had made on the carpet "'of every initial in order. "'Tom, Steve, Max, Gwen, Robin and Paul, me, Mary, James,' she said. "'But where's the W for Will?' "'Will's was there with all the rest, in the box.' "'It wasn't a W, actually, if you remember,' said Mr. Stanton. "'It was a kind of pattern. "'I dare say Frank had got tired of doing initials by then.' "'He grinned at Will. "'But it's not here,' Barbara said. "'She held the box upside down, then shook it. "'Then she looked at her youngest brother solemnly. "'Will,' she said, "'you don't exist.' "'But Will was feeling a growing uneasiness "'that seemed to come from some very deep, far-away part of his mind.' "'said it was a pattern, not a W,' he said casually. "'What sort of pattern, Dad?' "'A mandala, as I recall,' said Mr. Stanton. "'A what?' his father chuckled. "'Pay no attention. I was only showing off. "'I don't imagine Frank would have called it that. "'A mandala is a very ancient kind of symbol "'dating back to sun-worship and that kind of thing. "'Any pattern made of a circle with lines radiating outward or inward. "'Your little Christmas ornament was just a simple one.' "'A circle with a star inside, or a cross. "'A cross, I think it was.' "'I can't think why it isn't there with the rest,' said Mrs. Stanton. "'But Will could. "'If there was power in knowing the proper names of the people of the dark, "'perhaps the dark could in its turn work magic over others "'by using some sign that was a symbol of a name, like a carved initial. "'Perhaps someone had taken his own sign in order to try to get power over him that way.' And perhaps, indeed, this was why Farmer Dawson had carved him not an initial, but a symbol that nobody of the dark could use. They had stolen it anyway to try. A little while later, Will slipped away from the tree decorating and went upstairs and pinned a sprig of holly over the door and each of the windows of his room. He tucked a piece into the newly mended catch of the skylight as well. Then he did the same for the windows of James's room, which he would share for Christmas Eve, and came downstairs and fixed a small bunch neatly over the front and back doors of the house. He would have done the same to all the windows, too, if Gwen hadn't crossed the hall and noticed what he was doing. 
"'Oh, Will,' she said, "'not everywhere. "'Put it all along the mantelpiece or somewhere, "'so it's controllable. "'I mean, otherwise we shall have holly-berries underfoot "'every time anyone draws the curtains.' "'A typical female attitude,' Will thought in disgust, "'but he was not inclined to draw attention to his holly "'by making any great protest. "'In any case,' he reflected, "'as he tried to arrange the holly artistically over the mantel, "'up here it would be a protection against the only entry into the house "'that he had forgotten about. "'Having left his father Christmas days behind, "'he had not thought about the chimney. "'The house was glowing now with light and colour and excitement.' Christmas Eve was almost accomplished, but last of all there came the carol singing. After tea that day, when the Christmas lights had been turned on, and when the last rustling scuttlings of present wrappings were ending, Mr. Stanton stretched back in his battered leather armchair, took out his pipe, and beamed pontifically at them all. "'Well,' he said, "'who's going on the trek this year?' "'Me,' said James. "'Me,' said Will. "'Barbara and I,' said Mary.' "'Paul, of course,' said Will. "'His brother's flute-case was already on the kitchen-table. "'I don't know whether I shall,' Robin said. "'Yes, you will,' said Paul. "'No good without a baritone.' "'Oh, all right,' said his twin begrudgingly. "'This brief exchange had been repeated annually now for three years. "'Being large, mechanically-minded, and an excellent footballer, "'Robin felt it was not quite proper for him to show eagerness "'for any activity as ladylike as carol-singing.' In fact, he was genuinely devoted to music, like the rest of them, and had a pleasant dark-brown voice. "'Too busy,' Gwen said. "'Sorry.' "'What she means is,' said Mary, from a safe distance, "'that she has to wash her hair, in case Johnny Penn might come round.' "'What do you mean, might?' said Max, from the armchair next to his father's. Gwen made a terrible face at him. "'Well,' she demanded, "'and what about you going caroling?' "'Even busier than you,' Max said lazily. "'Sorry.' "'And what he means is,' said Mary, now hovering beside the door, "'that he has to sit up in his room "'and write another enormous long letter to his blonde bird in Southampton.' Max pulled off one of his slippers to hurl, but she was gone. "'Bird,' said his father, "'whatever will the word be next?' "'Good grief, Dad!' James looked at him in horror. "'You really do live in the Stone Age. "'Girls have been birds since the year one. "'Just about as much brains as birds, too, if you ask me.' "'Some real birds have quite a lot of brains,' Will said reflectively. "'Don't you think?' "'But the episode of the rooks had been so effectively removed from James's mind "'that he took no notice. "'The words bounced off. "'Off you all go,' said Mrs. Stanton. "'Boots, thick coats, and back by eight-thirty. Eight thirty, Robin said, if we give Miss Bell three carols and Miss Greythorn asks us all in for punch. Well, nine thirty at the very outside, she said. It was very dark by the time they left. The sky had not cleared, and no moon nor even a single star glimmered through the black night. The lantern that Robin carried on a pole cast a glittering circle of light on the snow, but each of them had a candle in one coat pocket just the same. When they reached the manor, old Miss Greythorn would insist on their coming in, and standing in her great stone-floored entrance hall with all the lights turned out, each holding up a lighted candle while they sang. The air was freezing, and their breath clouded out thick and white. Now and then a stray snowflake drifted down from the sky, and Will thought of the fat lady in the bus and her predictions. 
Barbara and Mary were chattering away as cosily as if they were sitting at home, but behind the clatter, the chatter, bah, but behind the chatter, the footsteps of all the group rang out cold and hard on the snow-caked road. Will was happy, snug in the thought of Christmas and the pleasure of carol singing. He walked along in a contented, dreamy state, clutching the big collecting-box they carried in aid of Huntercombe's small, ancient, famous, and rapidly crumbling Saxon church. Then there ahead of them was Dawson's farm, with a large bunch of the many-buried holly nailed above the back door, and the carol-singing had begun. On through the village they sang, Noel for the rector, God rest ye merry gentlemen for jolly Mr. Hutton, the enormous businessman in the new mock-tudor house at the end of the village, who always looked as though he were resting very merry indeed. Once in Royal David's city for Mrs. Pettigrew, the widowed postmistress, who dyed her hair with tea-leaves, and kept a small limp dog which looked like a skein of grey wool. They sang Adeste Fidelis in Latin, and Les Anges dans nos campagnes in French for tiny Miss Bell, the retired village schoolmistress, who had taught every one of them how to read and write, add and subtract, talk and think, before they went on to other schools elsewhere. And little Miss Bell said huskily, "'Beautiful, beautiful!' put some coins that they knew she could not afford into the collecting-box, gave each of them a hug, and, "'Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas!' they were off to the next house on the list. There were four or five more, one of them the home of lugubrious Mrs. Horniman, who did for their mother once a week, and had been born and bred in the east end of London, until a bomb had blown her house to bits thirty years before. She had always given them a silver sixpence each, and so she still did, coolly disregarding changes in the currency. "'Wouldn't be Christmas without sixpences,' Mrs. Horniman said. "'I laid in a good stock before we got landed with all them decimals, so I did, so I can go on every Christmas just the way I used to, me ducks, and I reckon my stock'll see me out, until I'm deep in me grave and you're singing to someone else at, at this here door. Merry Christmas!' <laughs> and then it was the manor, the last stop before home. Here we come a-wassailing among the leaves so green, Here we come a-wandering so fair to be seen. They always began with the old wassail song for Miss Greythorn, and this year the bit about the green leaves, Will reflected, was even more inappropriate than usual. The carol bounded its way along, and for the last verse Will and James soared up into the high peeling descant that they did not always use for an ending because it took so much breath. Good master and good mistress, while you're sitting by the fire, pray think of us poor children who are wandering in the mire. Robin tugged the big metal bell-pull, whose deep clanging always filled Will with an obscure alarm, and as they spiralled up in the last verse the great door opened, and there stood Miss Greythorn's butler, in the tail-coat he always wore on Christmas Eve night. He was not a very grand butler, his name was Bates, a tall, lean, morose man, who could often be seen helping the one aged gardener in the vegetable garden near the manor's back gate, or discussing his arthritis with Mrs. Pettigrew at the post-office. "'Love and joy come to you, and to you your wassail too.' The butler smiled and nodded politely at them, and held the door wide, and Will all but swallowed his last high note, for it was not Bates, it was Merriman." The carol ended, and they all relaxed, shuffling in the snow. "'Enchanting,' Merriman said gravely, surveying them impersonally, and Miss Greythorn's high, imperious tones came ringing past him. 
"'Bring them in, bring them in, don't keep them waiting on the doorstep.' She sat there in the long entry-hall, in the same high-backed chair that they saw every Christmas Eve. She had not been able to walk for years after an accident when she was a young woman. Her horse had fallen and rolled on her, the village said, but she flatly refused ever to be seen in a wheelchair. Thin-faced and bright-eyed, her grey hair always swept up on top of her head in a kind of knot, she was a figure of total mystery in Huntercombe. "'How's your mother?' Miss Graythorne demanded of Paul. "'And your father?' "'Very well, thank you, Miss Graythorne. "'Having a good Christmas?' "'Splendid, thanks. I hope you are.' Paul, who was sorry for Miss Graythorne, always went to some trouble to be warmly polite. He made sure now that his eyes did not flicker round the high-roofed hall as he spoke. For although the cook-housekeeper and the maid were standing beaming at the back of the hall, and though of course there was the butler who had opened the front door, Otherwise, in all this great house, there was no trace of any visitor, tree, decoration, or any other sign of Christmas festivity, save for one gigantic branch of many-buried holly hanging over the mantel. "'An odd season, this,' Miss Graythorne said, looking at Paul pensively. "'So full of a number of things, as that odious little girl in the poem said.' She turned suddenly to Will. "'Are you having a busy time this year, eh, young man?' "'Sorry. And are you having a busy time this year, eh, young man?' "'I certainly am,' said Will, frankly, caught off balance. "'A light for your candles,' said Merriman, in low, respectful tones, coming forward with a box of enormous matches. Hastily they all tugged the candles from their pockets, and he struck a match and moved carefully among them, the light turning his eyebrows into fantastic bristling hedges, and the lines from nose to mouth into deep-shadowed ravines.' Will looked thoughtfully at his tail-coat, which was cut away at the waist, and which he wore with a kind of jabot at the neck instead of a white tie. He was having some difficulty in thinking of Merriman as a butler. Someone at the back of the hall turned out the lights, leaving the long room lit only by the group of flickering flames in their hands. There was the soft tap of a foot, then they began with the sweet soft lullaby carol. Lulay, lulay, thou little tiny child, ending it with a last wordless verse played only by Paul. The clear, husky sound of the flute fell through the air like bars of light, and filled Will with a strange, aching longing, a sense of something waiting far off that he could not understand. Then, for contrast, they sang, God rest ye merry gentlemen, then the holly and the ivy, and then they were back at good King Wenceslas, always a grand finale for Miss Graythorne, and always making Will sorry for Paul, who had once observed that this carol was so totally unsuited to his kind of music that it must have been written by someone who despised the flute. But it was fun being the page, trying to make his voice so exactly match James's that the two of them together sounded like one boy. "'Sire, he... um... "'Sire, he lives a good league hence.' "'And Will thought, "'We're really doing well this time. "'I'd swear James wasn't singing at all if... "'Underneath a mountain... "'If it weren't for the fact that his mouth's moving... "'Right against the forest fence.' "'And he glanced through the gloom as he sang, "'and saw with a shock as brutal as if someone had thumped him in the stomach "'that, in fact, James's mouth was not moving, "'nor was any other part of James, nor of Robin, or Mary, or any of the Stantons. 
They stood there immobile, all of them, caught out of time, as the walker had stood in the old way lane when the girl of the dark enchanted him. And the flames of their candles flickered no longer, but each burned with the same strange, unconsuming pillar of white luminous air that had risen from Will's burning branch that other day. Paul's fingers no longer moved on his flute. He, too, stood motionless, holding it to his mouth. Yet the music, very much like, but even sweeter than the music of a flute, went on, and so did Will, singing in spite of himself, finishing the verse, "'By St. Agnes' fountain.' And just as he began to wonder, through the straight, strange, sweet, accompanying music that seemed to come out of the air, quite how the next verse could be done, unless a boy soprano were expected to sound like good King Wenceslas as well as his page, a great, beautiful, deep voice rolled out through the room with the familiar words, a great, deep voice that Will had never heard employed in song before, and yet at once recognized. "'Bring me flesh and bring me wine, bring me pine logs hither, thou and I will see him dine when we bear them thither.' Will's head swam a little, the room seemed to grow and then shrink again, but the music went on, and the pillars of light stood still above the candle-flames, and as the next verse began Merriman reached casually out and took his hand, and they walked forward, singing together. Page and monarch, forth they went, forth they went together, through the rude wind's wild lament, and the bitter weather. They walked down the long entrance-hall, away from the motionless Stantons, past Miss Greythorn in her chair, and the cook-housekeeper and the maid, all unmoving, alive and yet suspended out of life. Will felt as though he were walking in the air, not touching the ground at all, down the dark hall, no light ahead of them now, but only a glow from behind, into the dark. "'Sire, the night is darker now, and the wind blows stronger. "'Fails my heart, I know not how, I can go no longer.' "'Will heard his voice shake, for the words were the right words for what was in his mind. "'Mark my footsteps, good my page, tread thou in them boldly,' Merriman sang, "'and suddenly more was ahead of Will than the dark.' There before him rose the great doors, the great carved doors that he had first seen on a snow-mounded Chiltern hillside, and Merriman raised his left arm, and pointed at them with his five fingers spread wide and straight. Slowly the doors opened, and the elusive, silvery music of the old ones came swelling up briefly to join the accompaniment of the carol, and then was lost again and he walked forward with Merriman into the light, into a different time and a different Christmas, singing as if he could pour all the music in the world into these present notes, and singing so confidently that the school choir-master, who was very strict about raised heads and well-moving jaws, would have fallen mute in astonished pride. End of Book 2, Chapter 1, Christmas Eve. Wow. Good chapter, huh?